This morning we'll be continuing in the book of Matthew, entering into chapter 22. And uh, in a way of introduction, uh, this is all tied together with chapter 21 as well. In the last two Sundays, uh, messages dealing with the parables, parable of the two sons, the parable of the uh, wicked tenants, and uh, now the uh, parable of the wedding feast. So uh, they're all tied together and in in, in, in with purpose that Jesus is confronting the uh, chief priests and the Pharisees, the scribes, in reference to formalism and, and, and man-made religion and, and, and thinking that that's the way to do it versus coming to Christ and God and, and coming on God's terms. And so that's what we'll be looking at closely today. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be, uh, may be compared to a, king, uh, to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves uh, have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And while the rest, and while the rest then seized his servants, treated them shamefully and even killed some of them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderous and, and uh, murderers and burned their city. When he said to his servants, then he said to his servants, "The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find." And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. You look at this parable, and this isn't one that's particularly easy to preach on, simply because there's a sense of harshness here uh, that most people look at and see, and they don't know how to explain it. And so some people try to explain it away, which is a mistake. And, and others try to just kind of look at it and say there's this wedding feast and they focus on the wedding feast. And they don't focus on the, the real issue here. You see, the wedding feast isn't the main thing of concern in, these, in this parable. As important as it is to us as Christians who look ahead to the marriage feast, the wedding feast, and, and long for that time to come, that's not the key thing here. The key thing is the responses to the wedding feast. And how the world and people were responding to the invitation. And so we'll be looking at that closely today. Uh, the thing that set the stage again for the teachings here goes back to Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27, where the authority of Jesus is challenged. And uh, Matthew writes there, And when Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him, and as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, these things that they're referring to are the things that have already happened. The triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. Who gives you the authority to do these things? You see, there's two things that have happened here so far. I know we've gone over, but as a reminder and putting it into the context for these parables, is the fact that Jesus came as the king of kings in the triumphal entry. And so he's declaring himself king. But in cleansing the, the temple, he declared himself high priest. And so he's already doing two things. He's king and high priest. And, and 
they look at that and say, wait a minute, that's, this isn't the way our system works. Now, of course, what we're looking at is a system that is actually older than their system. It goes back to the, the priesthood of Melchizedek, and we won't get into that, but Jesus says, that, Psalm 110 says that Jesus will be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he will be one forever. And so, uh, you want to get some of the details on that, go back to Genesis 14 and, and other places in the, in the Old Testament, and it talks about Melchizedek and, and who he is, and then Hebrews chapter 4, 5, 6, and 7 really give you some details in there as well. Uh, but Jesus is making a statement. I am the Messiah. I am the King of Kings. I am the Son of David. I am the High Priest. I have the, this temple is my place of worship. And I have the right to declare so and to cleanse it. And so they're saying, where do you get this authority? And Jesus answered them in verse 24. It says, I also will ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? Now, really, the answer to this, why did you not believe him, was why did you not do what he said? What was the message of John the Baptist? Repent. Uh, he says, I've come to prepare the way of the, uh, of, of the Lord. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. He was declaring, and, that, and, and you know, when the Pharisees came to him, he said, you snakes. Uh, it's, you know, who, you know, and, and basically, it's, it's, you, you need this. <laughs> And they're saying, we don't need this. We're, we're the Pharisees. We are the keepers of the law. We are the teachers of the law. And, and you, know, you know when the Pharisees would talk about Jesus hanging out with the sinners? He was actually you know, not just talking about, you know, I've had heard some really bizarre uh, you know, ideas about that, putting Jesus in the in the bar room with the, the guys and, 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 and having a drink with them or whatever and different things. I'm, I, what, what really was the concern was is that the Pharisees looked down on everybody who was not a Pharisee as lower than themselves, commoners at best, and they were all sinners. They couldn't keep the law like we do because they don't know the law like we do. So everybody looked at the Pharisees as... Wow, that's what every you know. If you could be a something, you'd want to be a Pharisee, or depending on your party affiliation, you'd want to be a, a Sadducee. Uh, but but the idea was that you wanted to be one of these scribes, one of these teachers. They were the ones, and so they were looked up to. And so they come, and they're the ones that are challenging Jesus. And Jesus is saying, John the Baptist, who whose authority did he come? Did he come from God, or did he come from man? You can see this challenge because he's saying your authority hasn't come from God. It comes from man. That's the implication here. And so they say if we, if we say we did not, you know, what, that, that it was from man, uh, from heaven, then he'll say, uh, why did you not believe him? Verse 26, but if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd. <laughs> for, the, the, for all who hold the, John was a prophet. In other words, the, the general theme was John was a prophet and they were afraid to approach that in a negative way because the crowd was so in, in favor with John. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Now these are the teachers of the law who are telling people how to live. Recall Paul's picture of himself as a Pharisee how he had kept the letter of the law and he was perfect in the law and all that kind of stuff. This is how they think of themselves. And, 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 and they're saying, we don't know. In other words, they're saying, we, we can't recognize whether he was sent from God or not. This is their, their, their responsibility as the teachers of the Word to, to be able to discern this and collectively together to come to a decision. Is this a man you should follow or not? And they're saying, we don't know. Jesus knew he was putting them in this pickle. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, it wouldn't do any good for me to tell you 
anyway because you've ignored John. And he already knew their hearts. What do we know about the scribes and the Pharisees and, and, the, and the, 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 the lawyers, the, the, the legalists of the law at this point in time? The Sanhedrin, the leader of the Hebrew people, had already made a decision to put Jesus to death. They'd even made the decision by this time already that since Lazarus was an example of Jesus' authority and they did not know how to explain that, there was no way to deal with it. They said, we need to put Lazarus to death too because he's proof. These men have a, a handle on who Jesus is. They do not want to recognize him. They do not want to accept him. The parable of, of the, the tenants uh, from last week uh, the one thing that, that always strikes me about that parable is the tenants recognized the king, uh, the landowner the, of, the, of the vineyard. They recognized his son. And they said, hey, if we take him out, we take all the authority of inheritance away because he's got, only got the one son. In the midst of all of this, these Pharisees had an inkling, at least, of what was going on. Who Jesus was. And they were rejecting Him. And so Jesus says, it wouldn't do me any good to tell you. And since you won't recognize John the Baptist and we can't deal with it at that level, there's no way we can deal with it at this level. He says, I'm not. It wasn't being kind of na-na-na-na-na as much as just saying it would be pointless. So back to today's passage, Jesus says, you know, again, Jesus, Matthew writes, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. So referring to the last two parables that had addressed this authority challenge uh, on Jesus, he now comes to a third one. And in most of your commentaries, it's kind of interesting. Uh, some commentaries you go through and you're looking for chapter 22 and, 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 you know, they normally have a big heading, chapter 22, da, 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 da. And a lot of the commentaries, chapter 22 is tied to chapter 21. This part, and it comes under that heading instead. So if, we're, if you're looking through a commentary quickly and you miss it, go back to the end of chapter 21 and you'll probably find it tucked in there because this parable is tied with those two. So, it's, this is a graphic picture. It's a prophetic picture. It's full of prophecy. Jesus says in, 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 in verse 2 that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The focus, again, is not on the wedding feast, but on the responses of the invitator, the, those invited to the wedding feast as we go through this. So in verse 3 it says, He sends out His servants to announce that the wedding feast is about to begin. Now, the way this is worded, again, listen to it carefully. He sent his servants to call those who were invited. They'd already been invited. That's past tense. He, they are going out to now call those who have already been invited. How have these guys been invited? Well, it depends on what commentator you want to use. They, some of us say, go back and say to the Old Testament through all of the prophets. And I think that that's tied to this. They were invited through the prophets, but they were invited specifically through the last prophet of the Old Testament, which was John the Baptist. They had been invited by John. So he sends out his servants to announce that, that, that the feast is ready and about to begin. And the response was, they would not come. Just plain, simple. The ones who, who, who got announced to at this point, they simply would not come. That's plain out, simple rejection. We don't want anything to do with it. We're not coming. To be in, you've got to understand, to be invited by the king to attend a, a royal wedding is a privilege. And, and, and he, the fact that he was inviting these people uh, and, and, and who would be the typical people invited to a, a king's wedding? Remember, this is a parable. It's not the way it, the invite works to God's kingdom, actually. But, but, but the idea is, to a king's wedding, who would be invited? Well, all the ministers of, of, of various parts of the, 
of the the the, the kingdom, and the and the mayors and the and and the, the the lawmakers and the judges and all these people would be invited. Those who were part of the king's administration and, and organization, maybe a few that knew him well for other reasons, his his military generals and this type of thing. And as you're going through this, and you got to think too, what uh, what's the most important invitation you've ever received? And I'm not looking for a spiritual answer necessarily here, although that's the end of this thing. But, but uh, what's the most important invitation you've ever received? And I'm not, this is rhetorical. I'm not looking for, for answers. But you know, uh, maybe you've been invited to, at some point to sit with a, uh, a, 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 an important dignitary of some kind. Or maybe you've been at a place where you got to... to uh, you know, I was trying to think of, 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 I can't remember who it was that, that we, we had met back in the 70s who had gone to England and they happened to be at the right point in time and they were invited to a gathering through some extended ancient relative to a thing where the queen had attended. So they, that was, they, we were with where the queen was. They didn't get to meet her. There's no pictures of them with her or anything like that. But they, they got to go. Uh, somebody announced, I, I, was, I was just, uh, you watch the commercials, the Ancestry.com and, and, and the other ones about your genetic uh, code. You, you, you can send a sample of your, your blood or something you know, in, in, on this kit and they are able to determine your genetic background, your genetic makeup of the various places. And this person says, I didn't know until then that I was second, that George Washington was my great, 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 great aunt's cousin. George Washington was my cousin. And those are standing there with a picture of George Washington, you know. Uh, claim the fame, some kind of thing, you know. What's your invitation? My family's claim to fame is, 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 is if, you, if you really knew all the details, you would look at it as maybe more of an embarrassment. But I am the great, 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 great nephew of Captain John Sutter of Sutter's Fort. Now, if you know anything about John Sutter and the real history behind him, you'll realize that he was basically kind of a pirate and, and uh, that's not such a claim to fame. And it didn't get us anything. Uh, the only claim to fame that I know of is my, my uncle, John Sutter, when he went to pay for some stuff at the, at the, the souvenir store at the, the Fort Sutter's Fort in, in the Sacramento area, the guy looked at it and said, John Sutter? Oh, I'm going to keep this check. I'm not going to cash it. And he put it up on the, on, the, on the wall, you know. And so my uncle had to, you know, write a second check. Um, the guy wasn't willing to give him away anything for free. But, but he wanted to say, you know, John, a relative of John Sutter has been here. Yeah. So it, it, it got my uncle's name up on the wall for a while. I don't know if it's still there. And that's as much as we've gotten out of it. And uh, so, you know, names, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, your claim to being a part of or fame or to be invited to, you know, what is the, 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 these, these things that may have happened to you that are so important? And, and so these people had been invited to this king's wedding, which was a, a status an honor, a privilege. And they simply rejected the offer, the invite. They would not come. It just says they, they wouldn't come. So, verse 4 says he, he sends out another set of servants again to these people. And, and he says, the feast is now ready. In other words, it's not, you know, it's kind of like the initial invite was, you know, in six months it will be the, the wedding feast. And then he sent the, uh, the original invitation. And then he sends out the, the servants to by, by person and re-invite all those people again. And they won't come. And now he sends out the servants again. And he says, it's time for the wedding service to happen. And we're inviting you to come. The, 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 the feast is ready. And he describes the, 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 the fatted calf has been, been butchered. The, the oxen have been butchered. This is no small affair. There is an expected big crowd. And it says it's a feast. It's ready to go. It's time to come. And there's two responses. The first one, you know, you look at it in verse, verse 5. It says, they paid no attention. 
and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. In other words, they were indifferent about it. Kind of a lazy affair thing. We just don't see that as a really important thing to us. So, you know, I've got, I've got work on the farm to do. I've got business to take care of. And going to the wedding is just not part of the thing on my agenda today. And so it's a matter of indifference. I just, doesn't, not something I want to do. We're not coming. And they went off. Verse 6 is hard to understand. If it were not a parable. The rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, which means they basically they beat them and, 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 and mocked them, and then they killed them. They not only showed their disdain by refusing to come or being indifferent about coming, they actually were showing their disdain in a form of rebellion. We want nothing to do with you and your authority. We don't recognize it. King's response to this, well, it's kind of what you would expect the king to do. He destroyed their city and killed them. What we have here is basically in this parable the kingdom of uh, the, 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 the father is God. The son's wedding it's the wedding of Christ. The invited people are the Hebrew people who are the first to be invited and first on the list. And as a whole don't, don't, don't try to read into this parable more than a parable is meant to do. <laughs> as a whole they have objected, rejected, rebelled against it. They said, we've got, it's not according to the way we wanted it to happen. It's not according to the way we wanted to do it. And as a result, we want nothing to do with it. Jesus says there will be a judgment that follows that decision. Old Testament prophecies speak about it. And what we're talking about is Jerusalem, 70 A.D. The Roman general Titus and his legions surrounding the city of Jerusalem and strangling it on a slow siege. Starving them to death, basically. Until there wasn't any strength left. Josephus says there was well over a million, million and a half people trapped because they did it during Passover that were trapped in the city. Not enough water, not enough food. And the city was destroyed. That's a harsh thing to picture, but what we're saying is is something that needs to be understood. Within the framework of the kingdom of God, there are only two answers to the invitation. I accept or I refuse. There isn't one in between anywhere. There isn't room for it anywhere. God says you either are or you aren't. And what it says is that if you, and, and Scripture says this in the, over and over through the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Revelation, it says that if you are not a part of the kingdom of God, then you are a part of the kingdom of hell, of Satan. It's as plain and simple as that. The kingdom of God has eternal life forever in, the king, in heaven and, 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 and new heavens, new earth, and all that goes with that. And we've had... Uh, so a couple of great sermons that have been through Matthew already on that. And, and, and the kingdom of hell is a, is a, is a, is a place of, of darkness, frequently described as a place of weeping and even gnashing of teeth, a pain of place of suffering. And the book of Revelation puts it pretty clear. It's not a temporary place. It's an eternal place in itself. 
There's an invitation that has been put out and, 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 and these people were given, were given it first. That's the policy of, of, of the whole approach in the New Testament. To the Jews first. Paul abided by that. Even when he went out into, as, as to under the Gentiles, he went to the Jews first to share the Gospel. Most often he was what? Rejected. Sometimes he was shamefully abused and even left for dead. Outside one situation where they stoned him and left him as, uh, for dead. Some, some scholars think that he actually maybe had died and, that, you know, and Jesus raised him. And I'm not, I, I, I tend to lean that way. And what did you, by the way, what did Paul do? He went right back up into the town. Now, you know, it, it, in other words, this is what I am called to do. I am called to preach the kingdom of God at all costs. And so the, 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 there's, there's a, 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 you either re- receive the kingdom or you reject the kingdom. Uh, there's a, a, a phrase that, that I don't know that, that, that Francis Schaeffer coined it necessarily, but he used it so often, uh, and it was that there is no neutrality. In other words, there's absolutely nothing that's really neutral. It, 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 everything that you look at, and he would go to, to 1 John chapter 4 as, as a place to look at, everything has a spirit about it in the sense of which way it's going to lead you. If it doesn't declare God, in other words, if it doesn't lead you towards God, then it's the spirit of the Antichrist. A lot of people say, well, it just, it's, it's neutral. It doesn't do anything. Well, it, no, it's the Antichrist. Antichrist will be, the spirit of the Antichrist, in other words, that... The, 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 the philosophy of the devil, you know, neutrality is fine for him. He'll accept that because it means you're outside of the kingdom of God. You can deny it all you want. You can refuse that there's a God. You can refuse that there's a devil. You can refuse that there's a hell. It doesn't change the reality of what Scripture says. These are real things. Verse 8 kind of makes a transition here. The king said to his servants, the wedding feast is, is ready. By the way, what that means is the wedding feast is going to happen. Whether they want anything to do with it or not, whether they show up or not, it is going to happen. And the fact that they have rejected, rebelled, indifferent, and all these different things is to putting it into a we-don't-care issue to extreme rebellion and killing the messenger. He says they are not worthy to be here. Verse 9. So therefore, sending you out again, servants, this time I'm sending you to the, to, to, uh, the main roads. The idea of the well-traveled commercial roads where all the traffic is. And, and, and that would be like places where the caravans would go, uh, you know, different types of things. And you're going to run into on those roads, doesn't matter, you know, on the main roads, you're going to run into all kinds of people. You're going to run into some Jews. You're going to run into some Greeks. Or Gentiles. You're going to run into some slaves, some servants. You're going to run into all sorts of people. And he he basically says, go to these main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. I don't want you to use anything to distinguish your purpose in calling these people and inviting them. Just invite them. And these servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. They gathered both bad and good. And and the bad and good aren't so much the idea of of dividing wicked and evil versus good people as much as the the understanding of what bad and good might be in the Hebrew culture. They, they, you know, Gentiles would not be good people, (laughs) but they were invited. 
The slaves, lower class people, they, would, they don't attend formal affairs. They're invited. The servants, they're invited. And the Jews who aren't on the original list, they're invited too. Whoever you meet, they're invited. And the wedding hall was full. That was, he said, basically the, the king is saying, my son will be honored. And the wedding feast is prepared. And it will be well attended. You've got a choice. But there's one lone thing yet to see. Because there's an exception in the midst of the, of the crowd. Verse 11. You know, it's kind of one of these things where I, I, I wish that it had just stopped here. And, 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 but verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now, you see, I tend to be the person who takes the, uh, a parable further than it's meant to go. These guys didn't have time to go home and change. I mean, that, you know, they didn't, you know, if they had any good clothes. Some of these people only didn't, wouldn't have had wedding garments in their closet. However, some of the oriental customs, and, and, which the Middle East is, uh, and, and of kings, was to provide wedding robes so that everybody was covered when they came to the wedding. There was no distinction about the guests because all of the honor was to go where? To the, to the son and his bride. And so they would have the wedding robes. Whether this situation, Jesus doesn't spell that out here, but... The implication is, is, is reasonable to, to, to see here. They showed up, they were given their wedding robes, and they came in. But one has no wedding robe. And, I, and I'm trying to think of excuses for him. That's my kind of nature to try to, you know, maybe even some people might say sometimes the, the devil advocate in something. But, but the idea was, you know, I didn't get, have time to go home. And then as I studied that, that got ruled out because everybody else had a wedding robe. So for however that worked, everybody else had one. He didn't. And he's being held accountable for not having it. So he must have had an opportunity to have it. And so what, you know, what's going on here? Uh, they ran out. Well, he wouldn't have been speechless then. He would have said hey, they ran out. The word here for speechless basically implies that he had no good answer. He had no good answer. He was speechless. Now, G. Campbell Morgan does, uh, did a, a word study for some of this as well for verse 11 and 12. The word without or did not have uh, is two different words in, one, in verb, uh, verse 11 the idea of being without his wedding garment was a matter of fact. He did not have one. He could look at him and see he doesn't have one. He did not have it. However, in verse 12, it's a different word for that same without or not uh, there. And, and, and it's a, a word that has to do more with the idea of choice. He was, you know, it says the, uh, the man without the garment, the one who had Chosen not to have one. See, we can't get that out of the, the word. In the, and I, so I, I said, thank you, you know, Mr. Morgan. I appreciate that. Uh, because what he was explaining to me was, was a, a very clear and important thing here. And I think uh, so often I'm so blessed to know that, that the, the scholars of Greek and Hebrew and others that have taken the time to, to parse these things out so that we can know them. And, and so here's this picture. This guy has no excuse because he chose not to have a garment. Now, it doesn't give us any of the details as to why he chose not to. 
But if we tie it back to all of the things that have been happening, he may have still been one of the people hanging on to the old root and basically saying, I don't need one. I'm already there. My clothes are good enough. Remember, he was just random. It doesn't mean everybody that was on the route uh, in the main highway, you know, there could have been a Sadducee, there could have been a Pharisee, there could have been, you know, uh, but he comes, he shows up, doesn't say who he is or what he is, other than he has a position in reference to who he is because he doesn't need the garment. So I don't have it. You know, the implication, I don't need it. The problem is, is that Everybody needs a wedding garment. We'll look at that a little closer in a minute. As a result, there's a judgment. He did show up, but he didn't show up on God's terms. He showed up on his own terms. And God said, that's not enough. You're still trying to find a neutral zone and do it your way. You realize there are people that are going to come before the Lord in judgment and I know you know this because it's, it's, there's so many sermons that are taught on it, books written about it. Lord, Lord, why are you rejecting me? I did all of these things in your name. And Jesus has a four-word phrase, I never knew you. I can't imagine at that point how hard those words are going to be to hear. Those, are not for, you know, those aren't the words you want to, to, to have as your epitaph. He never knew me. But that's this man's epitaph, basically. You're not part of the kingdom. For whatever reason, he thought if he showed up, he'd be okay. But he still did it on his terms, his own way. No neutrality. And I realized that the key to all of this that Jesus was driving for is the wedding garment. We all need a wedding garment. It doesn't matter what you have been in your lifetime. It doesn't matter how much you know about the Word, how much you know. In fact, the more you know about the Word, the more you should realize that you need a wedding garment. The more you know about God's plan of salvation and the, and the gospel, and how many times it's told, starting with John and then the apostles, uh, you know, through the book of Acts, you know, sent out over and over and over again to, 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 to bring people to the Lord, to the Jews first, and then to the, to the roads and byways and, and, and all, and, and bringing them in, uh, that we are all sinners. None of us can come before the throne on our own merit. All of our clothes are what? As filthy rags. Our very best. And I thought, and you know, Isaiah 61, that's why it was the Scripture reading this morning. Couldn't be more appropriate. Verse 10 of Isaiah 61, again, Reading it, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for He hath clothed me with a garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. What a powerful picture. He has done this. I didn't show up and say, have I been good enough or, or offer my, my, my ideas of, of the things that I may have done that would make me worthy enough or good enough? I, I have shown up because He has clothed me with His robe of righteousness. And for me as a go-to Scripture, I know that you probably over the years say, how many times will I hear this from Him? Well, more. You know, yet, and certainly today. In the, the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, Zechariah showed a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is Christ. And Satan was there too, standing at his right hand to accuse him. 
So here's Zechariah. He's standing before the Lord. Or I mean Joshua. High priest. High priest. Standing before the Lord. Satan is right here ready to accuse him. That means Satan feels he's got, a, he's got something against Joshua. Joshua has broken some law, some point, some place that causes him to not be eligible for the kingdom of God because you have to be holy as God is holy and there is no other grounds for admission. And he knows Joshua hasn't cut it. So he's there ready to jump on it. The Lord rebuked. And this is what the Lord says to to, to Satan in verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, have I not chosen this one? Have I not plucked him from the fire? You can come here with your list and it could be like one of those old computer sheets that we had that were locked together page after page after page. You could just sit here and hold it and it would drop down. You know, I think the first time I ever did this thing, I had something like that just to be my, my you know, object lesson. You know, and, and the idea is it can just go on and on and on and on. Satan, you come here to rebuke him. It doesn't matter. You have nothing to say. You be silent. And you can see Satan over here, but, 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 silent. You have nothing to say. He's mine. I have plucked him from the fire. And then it goes on to have this picture of him being, his clothing being changed. Listen to this carefully. Now Joshua was standing before the Lord clothed with filthy garments. A high priest would never be caught in filthy garments. So even the high priest's robes were not good enough. Before the throne of God, he needed the robe of righteousness that Isaiah speaks about. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. I have taken your filthy rags off of you. And I have clothed you with pure vestments. Righteous vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And now he was presentable to the king. That's what he does with us. I know I've kind of pushed all of this into, you know, condensing a lot into one one picture here, but what I guess I'm trying to get you to see is that that there's the the thing that's happening here in this parable is, is that the wedding hall has been reserved. There is a point and a time appointed for the feast to take place. We don't know. And there's a whole other series of messages that go with that. And some of them will come ahead of us here in Romans, or I mean in, in Matthew. That, that you know, the, there's a point in time where this is all going to happen. The way has been prepared. What is necessary has been declared. For you to be in attendance to this feast, this wedding, has been declared. The invitations have been given. The feast is set out. Everything is ready for God's final say for it to happen. I don't know how many times... Even in my brief Christian walk, compared to the Christian history, for sure, uh, we've had the Lord must be coming soon. Six Day War went over. I wasn't even a Christian then, but I got handed a newspaper with, uh, declaring the end of Ar- Armageddon and the end of the world, uh, put out by a, a messianic Jewish uh, group, and and this was it. War was happening. Everybody was attacking Israel. There were some scriptures that they allied to those points and, and thoughts and said, it's over. Are you ready? It showed, you know, you know a Armageddon-type pictures and then it showed empty tombs, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it, 
1984, 1990-something, I can't remember, the year 2000. It goes on and on. We're always... There, it's, it's in Jesus' hands. It's in the, in the Father's hands. It's in, the, in God's hands. And His timing is perfect. Just as His timing was perfect to send His Son, His timing will perfect to come again. And at that perfect right time, it will happen. What we need to understand and why every generation ends up with this idea of there's a sense of urgency in this is because there's a sense of urgency in this. Why? Because for everybody in this room, this is the last generation. You don't, you don't get a second and third generation. You know, you're appointed once to live and once to die. So it's in times for you no matter what. And so the question is, have you looked at what God's plan is? He has it ready. He's laid it out. He's set down the, the things. And He has provided the robes, the garments of righteousness for all who want to receive them. Everything is in place. Everything is ready. So what's my report in response to this? Accept the invitation. Put on the robe. Actually, let him put the robe on me. That's the way it was in Zechariah. How does that happen? As soon as I confess with my mouth and believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord and I accept Him as my Lord and Savior, I now have the robe of righteousness. I get to show up to the wedding feast and I'll be sitting there and he won't, you know, in a sense, he won't, be, he won't give me a, a, another look because I don't need it. He, I, I'm, I'm as I'm supposed to be. I'm actually holy and righteous because I have the robe he gave me. As I was wrestling with this, final thoughts on this was, was you know, this, this parable, as best as I can, I've read, you know, there's, you know, my, my library in Matthew happens to have quite a few books. And I looked at all of them or most of them and some of the books on parables and other things, trying to, to, to put all this together and realizing there's a lot of opinions about details in this. The theme was consistent. The garment is the focus. Have you put it on? You can only put it on through Jesus Christ. Period. It's the only access to it. If you don't have it on, you're not a part of the wedding feast. And, and, and basically, what, everything else is really beyond my comprehension. Because I, I, I think in my lifetime, I have had opportunity to be invited to, uh, to a number of things that I thought were really exciting. Some of them, you know, uh, swelled the head because I got an invite and I thought, well, that's special. I typed one of them in just for the fun of it online to see if it was there and it wasn't. Now, I can, it was funny because something related directly to that same situation was online. Just didn't mention my name. I have a picture that proves I was there. But uh, it's not enough. No. Am I wearing the robe of Christ? Am I wearing the robe of Christ? Because that's really the most important invitation anybody ever will receive. And I have thought about this quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. And I realize that I'm really up and down about how I treat the invitations. There are seasons in my walk with the Lord, whether it's days, weeks, or hours, depending on what the situations are, where I'm really focused on it. There are other points where it doesn't even cross my mind. I, I mean, I'm honest with you. I, I don't get up every day saying, oh, I'm clothed in God's righteousness and therefore I'm a part of the, the, of the, the feast. That may change now. But, and add to my list of all the things I'm thankful for on a daily basis. But, but the reality is, is that it's the most important thing that, that's happened to me. Is I was extended an invitation and given one and clothed with the robe. It's beyond my ability to comprehend. Paul wrote in the, to the Corinthians in chapter 2, verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined. 
what God has prepared for those who love Him. It's beyond me. I've got a glimpse of it, and that's all. I see dimly at best. I long for the day when I see clearly. But I do know this much. It's a plan that happened before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. It's a done deal. The wedding feast is planned and scheduled. The invitations have gone out and have been made. And it will happen. For all who have the robe of righteousness because they've received Jesus Christ as their Savior, you will be there. If you haven't received Christ as your Savior, you won't be there. And the thing that marvels me possibly the most and is supposed to is how the robe of righteousness has been made available to me. The Word was in the beginning and was with God and was God. The Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. Paul says he emptied himself and became a man, even a servant to men, even to the point of death on the cross. Why did he do that? So that he could ultimately say the words, it is finished, from the cross. And perfect man, God-man, God in the flesh, died, shed his blood so that we could wear the robe of righteousness. Because if it wasn't for his gift and his sacrifice, none of us would have an access. Nothing on our own strength, but in his gift, his grace, his mercy. You can't purchase it. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. And when you receive it, you receive the greatest gift ever given man. Isn't that amazing? How blessed we really are. I ask the ushers to come forward and to pass out the emblems. Hold them until we've all been served. And uh, we'll share communion together.